0: Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to start, uh, start our morning, or at least our time in the Word here, standing as we read God's Word. So I invite you to remain standing. We're going to read, starting in John 11, verse 45. We're continuing, as Pastor Eric said, our series in John. And uh, last week, as you may remember, we heard of how Lazarus was raised from the dead. And so today we're, we're going to see some of the consequences of that, what happened um, as a result of that so let's read together John chapter 11, verse 45 to 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Passover, the Jews of what Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And you may be seated. Well, I recently heard a story uh, from someone who attends Hope, uh, whose family set up a real live treasure hunt. This person's dad and his, uh, his uncles uh, wanted their kids to love the outdoors. So they set up this, this treasure hunt for their kids where they took a large Tupperware bin, uh, filled it with all sorts of different trinkets, different items of, of varying degrees of value, and then hid it in this, this remote forest out west. And then over the next two decades or so, they gave, them sev- gave their kids several different clues and hints, a map, to see if they could eventually one day find it. it took 24 years, but they did eventually find it. After a few trips, um, one of the cousins discovered, discovered the treasure and found it underneath the big rock. So if you want to hear the whole story, you can ask Matt Tolley to tell you the rest. Uh, it was his family that did this. That's a fun example of an actual treasure hunt. It's a fairly tame one if you are aware of kind of the lengths to which people will go uh, who are actual treasure hunters. Right? There are people out there who will shape and dedicate their entire lives to finding what they believe is a hidden or a buried treasure somewhere, somewhere in the country, somewhere uh, hidden somewhere that no one has found yet. Um, you've, maybe you've seen that uh, classic movie National Treasure uh, where Nick Cage uh, kind of is like this, right? He's a treasure hunter. Everything about him, everything about his life is dictated by what he loves the most by this, this, this pursuit of a treasure. Uh, our passage today is going is to ask a question that's related to this. What is it that we treasure the most? What is it that you treasure the most? That could be a difficult question to answer in the abstract, but it is an important one, and it's one that's uh, important for us because what you treasure, what you value, what you love the most in your life is going to dictate most of how your life goes. It's going to dictate your loves, it's going to dictate how you choose to act. It's going to dictate how you approach Jesus. So it's an important question. It's one that we're going to look at this morning. So as we go through our passage today, there's going to be two main points we're going to look at. The first, that you can treasure Christ as your substitute. Second, you can treasure Christ as the Savior who gives you life. So I'll go over those again. You can treasure Christ as your substitute, you can treasure Christ as the Savior who gives you life. And it's my hope that as we go through our passage today, we see what Jesus came to do for us, we see what he came to give us, and we get to see the, a, a beautiful example of devotion later on in chapter 12, devotion to Christ, that it will help us treasure Christ more than anything else, more than power, more than money, more than anything else that this world has to offer. So let's begin with our first point. You can treasure Christ as your substitute. Now, if you remember from last week, as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus has just performed, uh, in a sense, it's, it's kind of like the pinnacle of his miracles up to this point in his ministry. Right? He's raised Lazarus from the dead, one of his friends. And it seems as though this, this is some kind of tipping point for Jesus' ministry. Uh, lots of people are starting to believe in Jesus. There's kind of this, this messianic momentum that's starting to build. And the Pharisees hear about this. And so a council meeting is gathered. The council was this group of all the influential teachers and leaders of the Jews. They also called it the Sanhedrin. Uh, And they state their concern there in verse 47 and 48, that if this continues, the Romans are going to come, they're going to take away their place, which is probably referring to the temple, and take away their status as a nation. Now, this was not a baseless fear. This very well could have actually happened. Uh, The Romans were kind of the, the presiding superpower at that point. The Jews were uh, kind of operated within the confines of the Roman Empire. Um, They had to pay them taxes, which we see on a number of occasions makes a lot of Jews very upset. Uh, They weren't able to rule themselves independently. In fact, uh, the the man that we're going to meet, the high priest today in our our passage, Caiaphas, he was not actually chosen by the Jews. He was appointed by the Romans to be the high priest of the Jews. So he was almost like a a Roman government employee of sorts. Um, But if this council kept the Jews under control, they kind of had this deal with the Romans. If they kept the Jews under control and there was no revolts, they kept paying the taxes, then they could kind of govern themselves how they wanted to religiously. So if they wanted to throw someone out of the synagogue, the Romans weren't going to mess with that. If they wanted to continue to practice their feasts, that was going to be fine as well. Uh, But now this movement of Jesus is concerning to this council because it's starting to, to kind of taste a little messianic. Right? And the Jews have had experience in the past with, with people leading rebellions, revolts against the Romans in the interest of, of kind of freeing themselves from, from, their, from their control. So they're concerned that the Romans, if they got wind of this, uh, if there was maybe some move to make Jesus the king over Caesar, that the Romans are going to bring the army. And if they bring the army, then there's a good chance they're going to be looking at another destroyed temple, and they may be losing their own positions as Rulers of the Jews. So again, Caiaphas, um, uh, we meet him next here, and he is going to help them decide what to do to stop this. They have to figure out how to stop Jesus. Now, like I mentioned, Caiaphas was appointed by the Roman government. Uh, We know from other accounts that Caiaphas uh, was in this role of high priest for many, many years, over a decade, and for many years after this moment too. So he knew how to do the politics. And we kind of see his political mind work, uh, start to work in verse 49, where he responds to the council, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. His point was that the council was not grasping the magnitude of the issue. The stakes are high. The council might lose their temple, they might lose their status of the nation, they might lose their positions, and there's a chance they could lose their lives too. So, Caiaphas is kind of distilling the problem down for us. It's us or Jesus. We have to choose. And if they understand that, Caiaphas is saying they have to recognize that the only solution is that Jesus had to die so that they could live. I hope you can see how perverse this is. This is the high priest, this is the man who's responsible for the Jewish worship of God. He's responsible for teaching Israel God's ways, he's responsible for going before the Lord. Sacrificing on the Jewish people's behalf. It was a complete perversion of God's ways to kill an innocent man whose, whose main offense at this point was um, raising a dead man back to life. Thou shalt not murder. This was one of the most basic fundamental laws of the Jewish faith. And so Caiaphas is leading them on a quest to murder Jesus in order to keep their places of power in their deal with the Romans. It's interesting, you can see Caiaphas really had no faith that God would actually take care of Israel. He felt like he had to do it himself. Now, one of the things you might have wondered at some point, if you've been with us in the book of John, we've seen conflict after conflict uh, with the uh, religious leaders in Jesus. We just keep seeing it come up. They don't believe he's God, and they keep on uh, opposing him, pushing back against him. And you might have wondered at some point, is the problem that they believe in God, but they just haven't been convinced yet that Jesus is God, or is it something else? This passage shows us it's something else. It's not that they have any sort of real faith in God. They had no real faith that God would actually take care of them if they followed his ways. Real faith in God trusts God to take care of the the outcome while following God's ways. These men had no real faith in God to begin with. That's why they couldn't see that Jesus was God. And it's clear for these men what it is that they treasure, isn't it? It's pretty obvious. They treasure their positions. They treasure their lives. They treasure their positions of power over anything else, even over obeying God's law. And that's a sobering thing to see. And it's helpful for us to see as well. Because if you have a hard time answering the question of what it is you treasure the most, this might be one diagnostic question you can use to help figure that out. Because there may be times in, our, in your life, and perhaps often, when you're tempted to ignore God's laws or instructions for your life. And if you find yourself making the choice to disobey the Lord because you do believe the outcome or whatever you're going to get is more important than obedience to the Lord, then you've likely found an area of ungodly treasure in your heart. Something more important to you than obedience to the Lord. That's certainly the case for these men. But perhaps more importantly, John also wants us to see something uh, really important about what Caiaphas says. In fact, he stops for a few verses to kind of pull out and and kind of interpret for us what's going on here. Verse 50, Caiaphas' own words. There's some rich irony here. He says, It's better for you, talking to the council, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So again, John starts to give us a little explanation of what's going on here. Caiaphas is right. Caiaphas is exactly right. It is better. He has no idea how right it is, but God is sovereign even over the words that Caiaphas is using to order Jesus' murder. God was prophesying through this corrupt priest's mouth that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not just for the Jewish nation only, but to gather together all of God's children who were scattered. Hebrews 4.14 tells us that Jesus is our great high priest, and I think we can see such a, such a contrast here about why we needed a better high priest in Jesus. Caiaphas is planning to kill an innocent man to protect his place of corrupt power. And Jesus gave up his place of holy power to die for those who were corrupt. Caiaphas is breaking the law because he doesn't trust God. and Jesus keeps God's ways perfectly because he and the Father are one. Caiaphas was ready to kill his enemy to keep his own life. Jesus came to earth for the very purpose of dying, to give his enemy's life. That's the kind of high priest that we want. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's there's a certain tension that exists. And it's this. God loves sinners and wants sinners to know him. He wants sinners to be with him. But sin can't exist in God's presence. Like cold can't exist next to fire or light, or excuse me, darkness next to light. Sin cannot exist along with God's holiness. And sin requires punishment for there to be any real justice. And here's the tension. God still loves those sinners. So what does he do? He provides ways for the people to deal with their sin uh, using substitutes. The whole sacrificial system depended on this idea of substitutes. God loved human beings enough that he allowed a way for them to kill animals in their place, in place of their own death, so that he could have a relationship with them. Now, Passover, which we see here is, is right around the corner, uh, time-wise, in our, in our passage. But the Passover was one of the, one of the great examples of this, how God allowed Israelites to kill a lamb while they were in Egypt, spread the lamb's blood over their door, and that blood was a substitute for their own. But of all of the substitutes that we see in the Old Testament, all the lambs that were sacrificed in the sacrificial system, each time they celebrated the Passover, all of it was pointing ahead to something far, far greater. The sacrificial lamb who would only have to die once for all of the sins of all of his followers, and in doing so was going to gather all of God's children to himself. Jesus came to die as our substitute. He was going to take God's wrath on himself and give his righteousness to those who follow him. That's what, that's what we call substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. If you're a follower of Jesus, there was a time when you were standing directly in front of the fire of God's wrath. You were in danger of that. And what Jesus did is he came, he pulled you out of that fire and stood there himself. And died in your place. Jesus took your place, took the wrath that you deserved, and died in place of all of those who would follow him. Caiaphas didn't realize it, but the, the whole sacrificial system that he was in charge of was on the edge of becoming entirely obsolete. Because in Jesus, God was accepting a substitute that wasn't inferior to the sinner, but was so much superior that no more sacrifices would ever have to be made again. That would be finished this is what Jesus did for us. We were supposed to die. We were supposed to receive God's wrath because we are sinners. But Jesus stood in front of it in our place, took God's wrath, and gave us his life in exchange. And he did it because he loved us. He did that for his, because of his love for his children. Now, John finishes his little interpretation in verses 51 and 52 by saying, Jesus wasn't going to die for the Jewish nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And that is an extraordinary thing to to read today, because we're sitting here, two millennia later, John's writing here about us. Everyone here who has given their lives to Jesus, what Jesus did is he gathered you into his family, gathered you to himself through his death. And through his spirit, now we are, in this moment, united to Jesus, united to all of the others, our brothers and sisters, who have gone ahead of us or who are alive right now. That's what Jesus did when he died. He took God's wrath, gave us his righteousness, joined us to himself, and united us to the rest of the church. That's what Jesus won for us through this death on the cross. Now, chapter 11 ends with these people kind of wondering about Jesus. Right, you hear that, they're kind of wondering. And most likely they've heard that there's, there's an order out that Jesus be put to death. So they're standing in the temple wondering, will he come? Is he going to show up? They didn't know this, but they're wondering. What they're wondering right here is if the Lamb of God himself would come to the very last celebration, <laughs> pointing to what he was about to do on the cross. This would be the last Passover before history arrived at the destination that that celebration was pointing towards. The death of the true Lamb of God, who would be killed for the sins of all who call on his name. So let's move on to our second point. We can treasure Christ as our Savior. You can treasure Christ as your Savior who gives you life. So let's begin reading uh, in chapter 12. Read along with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, "'Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor?' He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Jesus is back in Bethany again, this time under happier circumstances. He isn't coming to find Lazarus dead and to raise him from his tomb, but he's coming to eat with him, to eat a meal with him. And I I do wonder what that conversation would have been like. What do you ask the man that just raised you out of the tomb? I'm sure there were a lot of questions they had. And it seems from verse 2 that the point of this meal was to honor Jesus for rescuing Lazarus, Martha serving, and then Mary shows up in verse 3 and takes a bottle of perfume, a lot of it, to pound, pours it out onto Jesus and begins wiping his feet off with her hair. As we just read, it wasn't any, just any perfume. Judas knows exactly how much that stuff cost. It could have been sold for 500, or excuse me, 300 denarii now, if you have a Bible in front of you, you might have a little footnote that tells you how much that was. Essentially, that was a year's salary for the average worker. If you take out Holy Days and the Sabbaths and different feast weeks, people wouldn't work on those days. So this was a year's salary. So if you just can imagine what an average salary for a year is for the average person, that is how much that perfume was worth. And Mary pours it out onto Jesus in his feet— and begins wiping his feet off with her hair. It's this beautiful picture of just complete, extravagant devotion to the man that had just given her back her brother. You might be wondering what's going on with the hair, why she used her hair to wipe his feet off. Um, It's a good question, not a lot of consensus on the scholars on why she used her hair. There's a lot of of thoughts, not a lot of consensus. but what we can see from Judas's reaction is that her action is kind of inexplicable to him, too, right? So if it seems strange to us, it also seems strange to Judas. Um, so I think what we can take from that is that the point of what she's doing, uh, whatever's going on with her hair, is, is meant to be the show of just complete, reckless, I-don't-care-what-people-think-of-me love for Christ, love for Jesus, love for her Savior, who had just brought her, her brother back from the dead. And it is such a contrast to Judas, isn't it? As he's watching in disbelief as the equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars are being poured onto Jesus, dripping on his feet. I'm sure he's wondering if Jesus really needed his nice-smelling feet. But John doesn't let us believe that Judas had anything like good motives for this. He wasn't really wanting to help the poor. His, this man's treasure was money. And we know he loved money more than anything else. He loved money more than the Savior because... Soon after this he'll betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's a common thing, isn't it, to, to treasure wealth, perhaps to treasure wealth, wealth more than Jesus? but it's dangerous it's dangerous. We see from Judas 's story, the danger of, of loving wealth more than Christ is that your heart 's treasure and love attaches itself to an addictive substance that will not let you go easily. That's what happened to Judas. And Jesus rebukes him, He rebukes Judas. And perhaps any other disciples who were nodding along with him. Mary, whether she knew it or not, had saved that perfume to anoint Jesus for his burial. She was preparing him for what was about to come. And you might have noticed as we read, there's a bit of a confusing way Jesus phrases his response. If you look at verse 7, he says, Leave her alone, and then he says, So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And It's a bit odd because it seems like she's already poured it all out. Um, prompting Judas' complaint. And most likely what Jesus is referring to is the fact that uh, Mary chose to keep the bottle rather than sell it for the poor. So you could read it, leave her alone. She didn't sell the perfume in order that she could keep it for the day of my burial. So what Jesus is doing here is he's giving yet another hint, another hint, another hint that his death is coming soon. And Mary was anointing him for his trip to the cross such a contrast to Judas, the man who knew exactly what that perfume is worth in terms of material money. And Mary recognized that Jesus' worth and value was far beyond any sort of material gift, because Mary's treasure was Jesus himself. She didn't care what it cost. Her treasure was sitting there with her. Jesus has made it pretty clear all throughout his gospel that he's not just another human being. If he was, this would have been an odd thing to let Mary go ahead and do. Perhaps wrong Jesus is someone And something much much greater than just another human He's not less than a real human But he's, he's much more than just a human This being that we refer to as God Had to take on flesh in order to To safely let us see him Interact with him in this way To know him more clearly And he did it so that he could come and die for us Our creator and our king Took on flesh to die for us so Mary understood this. She understood that the one who made the grass, the one that made the clouds and gravity, he was sitting there, eating with her. Which is hard to imagine. What do you give to the one who designed your skin, designed gravity, your mind, and gave you air to breathe? And this was the man who had saved her brother. I don't know if any of you have ever had someone rescue one of your family members from death. I tell you, if someone were to do that for one of my family members, they're going to get whatever they want. Money's not going to be in that. Money's not going to matter. What do you give to someone who's just brought your beloved family member back from the dead, given him life? And Jesus wasn't just there to save Lazarus from physical death. He was there to save Lazarus and Mary from eternal death, to give them life. So what do you give to someone who saves you from eternal separation from God, and God's wrath by going through it himself. Mary chose to pour out a bottle of perfume, <laughs> which when you, when you think about who Jesus is, what he has done, I think we can see along with Mary, it's, it's an insufficient gift to honor the king. He's worthy of much more than perfume or money. Mary's actions made it clear that Jesus was her true treasure. So she had no problem giving him all that perfume. She didn't care how much it cost because her true treasure was sitting there with her. Jesus is the only treasure worth our lives. Any other treasure takes life from us. We see that for the Pharisees and the council. They treasured their own power and position. And what we see is it robbed their souls of life. You see with Judas, his treasure was also rob his soul of life until he's ready to betray the Savior of the world for a few pieces of silver. But Jesus is a different kind of treasure. Instead of robbing you of your life, robbing you of your soul— he gives your soul life and promises eternal life with them. He makes you more like a real human being, not less. It's maybe another thing we can see here. When other things become what our hearts treasure, they, they slowly rob us of our humanity, too. Because we're designed as humans to worship and treasure God above all his gifts. And if we invert that, start be- we start becoming like those false treasures, those gifts. We become dead and lifeless. But Jesus does the opposite. He gives life to the lifeless at the cost of his own life. At the end of our passage here, these religious leaders make another appearance. Again, people are beginning to believe in Jesus more and more. They see Lazarus. That guy was dead. Jesus must be someone special. His life was a sign that was far too powerful for the Pharisees to allow to continue. So they decide they have to kill him too. I had someone point out to me this week that this story, again, is another example of how John is just begging his readers to believe in Jesus. These things are written down, John says, that we can believe, and that by believing we can have life in the name of Jesus. John wants us to see here what unbelief looks like in the hearts of the council and in Judas. And it's ugly. And he wants us to see what belief looks like in Mary's heart. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, I I think one of the best ways to apply this passage is to take some time to meditate on the truth that Jesus came willingly to substitute himself for you. The wrath of God should be on you, but Jesus took it on himself. Spend some time considering that. It could be tempting to look at Mary's actions and kind of ask, am I giving Jesus enough? What should I give him? What's my perfume? Mary's not anointing Jesus out of guilt or pressure. She's doing it because she's witnessed Jesus' love for her. She knows who he is, what he, how he cared for her and her family. So I encourage you, spend some time, some, spend some deliberate time considering how much Jesus loves you, because it's a lot. He loves you a lot. And pray along with Paul that the Lord would help you to know what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If you aren't a believer, you aren't a follower of Jesus, um, and you've been along for the ride through the book of John, I I hope you're starting to notice that these examples John's have been giving, along with these signs, and they're starting to make your heart wonder, what is going on with this man? Could he be who he says he is? I hope you've had a chance to see, perhaps, your own heart and some of the people that we've witnessed in the book of John, the gospel of John. I hope the Lord's working on your heart to recognize that your only way to have life is through this man, Jesus. That God's wrath is still, you are still heading for God's wrath to receive it unless Jesus is your substitute, unless you follow him as your Lord and Savior. Jesus is worthy of all of our devotion for who he is and what he's done for us. Jesus substituted himself in the place of all of God's children to die in our place so that we can have eternal life. And so just to return to that original question, what is it that you treasure the most? I pray for all of us increasingly, perhaps bit by bit, that Jesus would become the treasure that drives us, that animates us, animates our lives.